The content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered or used as medical advice or understood as the opinion of Patino Payments or any of its stakeholders. Always consult your doctor to obtain medical advice with respect to the use of any substance or ailment. As technology, healthcare, and business continue to evolve at a rapid pace, trailblazers all over the globe are boldly stepping forward to change things for the better. They're pushing past boundaries in every area and charting a new path forward. There's no denying the world as we know it is in the midst of an epic transformation. Welcome to Present Day Pioneers, the podcast exploring the alternative models that are reshaping the way our society thinks, feels, and behaves. I'm your host, Jackson Bokenfort from Patino Payments. Thanks for joining me on this fascinating journey as we catch a glimpse of what the future holds. Now, let's get into the episode. The use of psychedelic drugs as a tool for healing from mental, physical, and spiritual ailments has long been a contested topic. Despite the incredible benefits many people have experienced from using substances like psilocybin and the scientific evidence to support them, they're still illegal in many parts of the world. Today, on Present Day Pioneers, I'm sitting down with someone who knows all about this matter. Peter Rotano is the founder and director of Guella a company that believes the widespread, intentional, and sustainable use of mushrooms can radically improve the health of people and communities. The worlds of wellness, mushrooms, and psychedelics are coming together, and Guella wants to use their collective experience to help guide and support people on their journey. During the episode, we'll be discussing the history of psychedelics as a healing tool, how Guella is helping explore a new path for those who are seeking alternative therapies, and the future of the industry. Peter, welcome to the show. All right, Peter, welcome to the second episode of Present Day Pioneers. So I was wondering to uh, start there, Peter, could you share a bit about your life and career background so far? I'd kind of like to dive into your life story first, as I believe that paints the picture for the story of Guala Mushrooms. So why don't we start from where you first grew up? So I was born in Australia, raised in the UK, spent uh, a year or two in St. Kitts, and then back to England, back to Australia, and then finally over to Canada 10 years ago. So I kind of went from tropical to cold and wet to Arctic tundra, but I now live in, in Toronto, Canada. So Arctic tundra, indeed. I can, mm-hmm. I can finally see where that accent's coming from. That's awesome. <laughs> what have been some of the most memorable experiences with psychedelics in your own life? Yeah, I mean, growing up in the UK, magic mushrooms were legal, so I could... Me and my friends used to go off to a, a head shop. Um, we could buy a pallet load of, of magic mushrooms. And that was the first time I encountered them when I was 16. Went into a shop, bought them, went out to the woods and took a fairly heroic dose that you know lasted for probably eight or nine hours. And it completely blew my mind. You know, I had no idea that you could experience the things that I experienced that day uh, in the way that we experienced them, the kind of you know, visual sensations, kind of internal monologue and examination. It was a complete revelation to me. And that then led on to, you know, my, my journey for the next 20 years or so of exploring different, different substances and different, you know, entheogens. 
some maybe not. But in the UK, they were, you know, a variety of different legal substances, plant-based substances that you could you could get and, you know, take and, and experiment with your consciousness. So it, it got me fascinated with A, kind of playing with my consciousness and seeing what was possible and B, uh, kind of the, the history and culture of these substances. That's amazing. I like the uh, heroic dose part, <laughs> especially for a first time. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, that was uh, that was Terence McKenna's uh, recommendation. He said everybody once in their life should take five grams <laughs> of mushrooms, close their eyes, and sit in the dark by themselves with no music and experience the abyss. Yeah, I can't imagine there is any other better way to go about doing so. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a leap into the uh, into the unknown, but definitely worth doing. So I've been listening to your podcast, uh, Super Psychedelics. Uh, for anybody that's listening, that's Peter's podcast. And he had a guest on, Dennis McKenna. So Dennis is an ethnopharmacologist and very knowledgeable in the psychedelic space. One of the quotes that I loved that he said was, your state of mind will reflect your state of health and vice versa. These are not mutually exclusive. So I was wondering, why do you believe mushrooms are such a powerful healing tool compared to other modalities or substances? They, they historically have been used, you know, for, for thousands of years as a tool for self-improvement, for growth. And so it's really only in the last 70, 80 years that the West has encountered them and, and started looking at them from a, a scientific standpoint and what the kind of mechanisms of action could potentially be. In terms of, you know, how they work, it's still kind of TBD. I mean, there's a lot of great research. There's a lot of clinical trials rolling right now. I mean, all of these substances, whether you're talking about psilocybin or LSD or MDMA, they all work on the serotonin receptors. They all kind of produce an altered state of consciousness. They all generally bring around a state of kind of profundity and awe and allow you to think in, in slightly different ways. So one of the reasons why you know, coupled with therapy, this seems to be very plausible as a treatment for a lot of different ailments is because it allows you to reflect and not necessarily kind of, you know, feel the pain, but reflect on pain and see the world differently. There's a kind of, there's what's called the default mode network. It's a kind of, it makes us think in a very certain way and we get stuck in different patterns. And, you know, on a very high level, it seems like psilocybin and LSD allow us to kind of reflect on that and break those unhealthy patterns very fast. And then if you couple that with therapy, you integrate those learnings you've experienced on the trip, you can then kind of get those long-term benefits of kind of mental health improvement. Yeah, really stepping outside of your uh, programmed framework, I would say, mm-hmm. taking a step back and really being able to analyze that from a different perspective that normal traditional therapy would take you down, right? Right. So say, for example, MDMA, it floods um, you with kind of positive, warm feelings. MDMA was originally invented as a kind of therapeutic drug, it's synthetic and what that allows you to do, for, say for something like trauma, is it allows a therapist to kind of work through the trauma with you, talk about the trauma, but you're not experiencing that trauma. You're not feeling the pain, which is, you know, really a, a, an incredible tool for a therapist. So you can revisit it, you can talk about it, you can not feel, and then you can integrate um, what you've learned from it and try and kind of start thinking differently beyond that. 
I guess one of the reasons I love the theme of this specific podcast is because we get to speak to individuals like yourself who take risks exploring different opportunities in business and in life. Can you tell us when you saw a market opportunity for Guella Mushrooms? Yeah, so it was uh, just before COVID. I mean, I've always been interested in psychedelics and kind of functional health support tools. I've used them a lot myself, whether that's kind of functional mushrooms or psychedelics. But it wasn't until, you know, a couple of months before COVID that I that I made the leap into the into the company and, and kind of founded it. You know, I'd, I'd spent four years building a cannabis company prior to that, that got acquired. So part of it was, you know, I had the, the kind of mind frame and freedom and flexibility then to to go on and found and build another company so it was a combination of you know i just found myself with some extra time i was super interested in the space and there was all of these kind of tailwinds in the market that it was clear to me that there was a huge opportunity there we're starting to see you know cultural normalization so people talk about psychedelics a lot more people being a lot more accepting around it every day you see a new celebrity come out and kind of you know raise their hand and say i took a psychedelic substance and it improved my life little naz talked about his album yesterday that he took mushrooms um, and helped him will smith a few weeks ago so we're seeing this kind of cultural normalization but we're also seeing regulatory normalization and kind of liberalization so you know we're now seeing exemptions for use in Canada. We've seen numerous different states in the US decriminalize. And there's that kind of path towards as you get this cultural normalization, you get this legal liberalization, slowly you'll start to see more and more and more kind of acceptance and commercialization. And so, you know, two years ago, when we started Guella, you could just start to see the, the beginnings of that movement. You could start to see capital moving into the space. A few early companies started to go public in Canada, MindMed, Cybin, you know, all of these guys. And now there's, you know, I've, I've probably lost count. There's probably 35, 40 different public companies in, in Canada and in the US. And so, you know, the trend is here. It's growing. We're still at the beginning. There's still a lot of opportunity. But really, that's why I wanted to get into it. Passion, you know, time. And uh, this kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to be a first mover in a space. Where are we on the legality scale in Canada right now with regards to psilocybins? Still illegal everywhere in Canada. I would say there's there's vast differences between certain provinces. So Vancouver, you you know you may not even realize it's illegal. They have dispensaries, you know, all over the place. It's essentially kind of decriminalized. Toronto has a, a ballot on the books for decriminalization, but it's it's still illegal. But the police really kind of turned a blind eye to it. It's it's low low priority. It seems like from the feds, but we are starting to see these exemptions. Like I said, come through. There's a, there's a number of different organizations pushing those kind of regulatory limits, helping people get access to these substances for doing things like end-of-life care or cancer treatments. And we'll start to see more of these edge cases, these kind of this this push for the government to allow people to get access to these medicines. And then over time you'll see you'll see more and more acceptance. I mean that's that's exactly what happened with cannabis. Right. And you said that kind of looping back there, you said that you helped found one of the cannabis companies. Do you see this shroom boom, what people are calling it, as kind of similar to what the cannabis industry went through? Similar but different. You know, there's that saying like uh, history doesn't, you know, repeat itself. It kind of, there's a, it kind of rhymes. And so I'd say it, there's, there's similarities but differences. I'd say, you know, certainly on this kind of legalization path, 
we're seeing very similar movements and kind of noises, uh, grassroots and kind of corporate interests kind of come in. But there, there are big differences. And one, I would say that early on, there was a lot of claims around cannabis as a medicine, but very little data and research, whereas psychedelics were studied a lot in the 60s and 70s. We have a, a vast amount of data on what they can do. And now we're you know, topping that up with, with the companies doing the work now. But we're starting from a very different place. We know these are very beneficial substances and we know what different kind of disorders they can be used for. So on the medicinal wellness side, you know, we're starting much further ahead than, than with cannabis. I don't think we'll see the same kind of ultimately this kind of, you know, same kind of recreational because it's not a recreational substance. I mean, people certainly use it from a recreational standpoint, but it's it's more of a, you know, either medical or wellness um, or kind of nutraceutical style product. I mean, people use it to have interesting experiences or, you know, get more creative or productive and things like that. It's less akin to alcohol, which I think cannabis can be kind of related to in the fact that it's recreationally used. Yeah, I wanted to touch base on the kind of the healing purposeness of it. I don't think there's many people that understand how beneficial this can be to people. There's so many depressions and mental illnesses going on right now that why wouldn't we be able to explore this from a legal standpoint? I think that if we have the opportunity to do so and it can cure any one of those mental health diseases, why not explore it? So the the, the argument would be, for me, there's, there's two two levels to the argument for legalization, deregulation. You know, first off, they're beneficial. People can use them and they can get a great amount of value from them, whether they're for couples therapy or personal growth or you know, helping with their depression. And we're talking about like vast amounts of people with treatment resistant depression where standard treatments haven't worked. And, you know, you can have these breakthrough therapies with, with psychedelics. But then also the, you know, the bigger argument for me is just the state has no right to tell you what you can and can't do with your own consciousness. I think humans have a fundamental right to cognitive liberty. And that just means that, you know, if we want to experiment with our consciousness, we can experiment with our consciousness. And so ultimately, I think that argument will win out. The state has no right. And not least because nothing is gained through prohibition. Everything is is, is lost and, and, and nothing is gained. Nothing's made safer. The government doesn't get any money from it. People aren't educated. And yet they still have access to these substances. It's not difficult to get psychedelics in Canada or any drugs for that matter. But you know, if you're forced to buy on the black market, A, the black market or the gray market is profiting from this stuff and the government isn't getting money. But also, you know, it's a lot more dangerous to buy in an unregulated environment. So everything's improved by a process of dropping prohibition. So to go back to the spectrum that I see people viewing psilocybins and mushrooms on. I mean, I have one friend who thinks taking any amount of mushrooms will give you this profound out-of-body experience where they're not in control of any part of their limbs. Um, and then I have another friend who has seen benefits from ayahuasca. Um, there's people that treat their drug addictions from it, right? They go in there with a heroin addiction and they come out and they're completely cleansed from it. So what are some of those benefits you've seen people experience from psychedelic therapy? There's a vast amount of different types of disorders that, you know, let's say the, the clinical side's looking at PTSD, depression, anxiety, but also kind of sexual health, um, libido, things like that. Um, there's some great trials in the UK 
looking at alcoholism. So that's the kind of clinical side. And there's a, there's a, there's a ton of different kind of studies going on right now. And then there's, you know, the more wellness nutraceutical side. I mean, one of the biggest trends we're seeing is microdosing. So not taking a large, you know, macro dose, which would give you a, you know, the full trip experience, but a micro dose where you don't really feel it. A micro dose would be sub perceptual, you might feel it a little bit with the goal of improving your mood, improving your focus, getting a little bit more creative throughout the day. And that's one of the biggest trends that we're seeing. I mean, we On the podcast, we interviewed one of the gray market operators and a full half of the products that he's selling is is microdosing. So people, people taking small amounts of substances, almost like a vitamin supplement or something like that. So there's no trip whatsoever, but you're kind of, you know, improving your cognition, focus and energy. Right. Like a cup of coffee, almost. Cup of coffee. You know, people describe it as plant-based Adderall, you know, just yeah, a, you a natural energizer. Yeah. I don't, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to kind of go the legal route. We have IDs in our pockets right now that allows us to go to the store and get liquor, which has been proven that that harms you way more further down the line. So I don't understand why people aren't able to go and obtain license to go and have a license to buy psilocybin, you know, it should be definitely more normalized. Yeah, there's a the risk profile of psychedelics are extremely small compared to other drugs. I mean, you, you talk about alcohol, and that's incredibly dangerous and toxic. We, we know it is, um, especially Gen Z and up typically have fairly high alcohol consumption, and it's it's going to kill a lot of people. Whereas psychedelics, you know, tend not to be very dangerous whatsoever. Very similar to, to cannabis. You, you know, you, you'll hear edge cases of people that take psychedelics that probably shouldn't. It exacerbates schizophrenia or something like that. So there are people that probably shouldn't take these substances or should at least investigate whether they should before, before doing it. For, for the vast amount of people, the risk profile is, is extremely small, especially compared to, you know, cigarettes or alcohol that you can readily buy on the street. Could you give us a brief overview of the history of psychedelic therapies, kind of where they originated and how they were initially used uh, from your perspective? You know, there's indigenous communities that have been using these substances for a long time. I mean, you mentioned ayahuasca before in Peru and a variety of different places. So, you know, thousands of years we're talking about communities using these substances. And then in the West, you know, they've been used by specific groups, the Greeks, used to use psychedelic substances in Eleusis in their kind of mystery schools. And so all these ancient societies seem to have some kind of relationship with psychedelic substances. But if you're talking about when the West rediscovered these substances, and they and when I say rediscovered I mean because, you know, once Greece fell and the Christians took over. All of this kind of mystery school stuff was, you know, shut away to the point where, you know, we didn't even realize there was a connection. It's taken a lot of research from some great authors to dig up that connection. But when we rediscovered it was in 1955, when a, a guy called Gordon Wasson, an investment banker, went down to Mexico and um, encountered or took some magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin cubensis, and uh, came back and, and wrote about it and essentially exposed, you know, the, the 1950s kind of 60s hippie movement to this incredible experience. And that's when people like Tim Leary, 
went down to Mexico and also experienced it. He then took it back up. Tim Leary was a Harvard psychiatrist, scientist. He was friends with Richard Albert, who became Ram Das. And so there became this kind of Harvard collective of people that were all scientists that were super interested in what these substances could do from a therapeutic standpoint. And they're the ones that really kick things off in the West again. Now, because it was associated somewhat with the, the hippie movement, I say somewhat very associated with the hippie movement. Tim Leary started, you know, people, some people describe him as kind of going off the rails a little bit. I think that's a little bit un, unfair, but he certainly kind of moved away from establishment psychiatry and started preaching that, you know, everybody should start taking this substance and kind of became this kind of messiah of LSD almost in the, in the hippie movement. And it wasn't long until Richard Nixon um, said no more. I mean, the hippie movement was very much associated with the anti-war movement. And there was just too much stuff going on for the government to put up with. And that's when they put the, put the kibosh down and said, no more, we're going we're gonna to ban all of these substances. And so it all went underground. And a lot of the, the great research that had kicked off for 15 or so years um, stopped. And then it started to pick back up again with... The Johns Hopkins studies about about twenty or thirty years ago. So, we've we've got a you know relatively short exposure to it in that the modern kind of Renaissance context. But we've been you know since the fifties and sixties, we've really been it's really been a part of the Western culture. I like that story about the investment banker. I thought you were going to mention that he went in, took mushrooms, came back out, and was no longer a banker. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's probably part of the story, for sure. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. what he did afterwards, but I can't imagine it went back to investment banking. As Peter mentioned, psychedelics have been used for thousands of years as a tool for healing, growth, and self-improvement. But it's really only been in recent history that Westerners have started looking into the science of why and how these substances really work. In recent years, psychedelics have picked up speed in the Western world as an empowering healing modality that can help people struggling with mental, physical, or spiritual health ailments. Like a true present-day pioneer, Peter discovered this emerging trend early on, recognizing the opportunities that were bubbling just below the surface in this space. He noticed that cultural normalization and liberalization of psychedelics had been gaining momentum in recent years and decided to dip into the space himself, launching Guella. When he first launched the company, Peter knew of a few other companies operating in a similar space. And now, just two years later, the area has exploded with activity. As it turns out, Peter was right to follow his instincts and dive into the emerging world of psychedelics in Canada, which is only going to continue growing in the near future. Next, I asked him more about the shroom boom we're seeing right now and where he sees the industry headed in the future. Let's go back to Guala. How is Guala taking a new approach to psychedelic-assisted therapy? So what I wanted to do with Guala was take a, a different approach from a business standpoint. I wanted to do something where there was some white space and some opportunity for differentiation, but I also wanted to look at these substances in a different way. So when I started the company, most people in the, in the kind of the business models were either drug discovery, you know, what, what can we apply LSD or psilocybin or variations of to fixing a disorder or building clinics where people could go and get treatment. Now, as great as that is, and as much as I love all of that research, and it's going to help a lot of people with disorders, my fundamental belief is that there's a lot more to these substances than simply 
fixing disorders and I think more people should have access to them than people suffering from disorders. And so Guella's initial mission and still is, is how do we improve access for people to use these substances for more than just fixing disorders, for self-improvement, for personal growth? How do we provide them the tools for safer, more responsible, more intentional usage outside of that pharmaceutical or that clinical framework? And I think there is a sort of stigma associated with it, you know, that people just don't have knowledge of what psychedelics can do. And I, I guess that's my question to you. How can we break down those barriers? Part of its education. I mean, a big part of Gwella's Plank is producing, you know, content and media that helps educate people on what they are and what you can do with them safely. And there are other platforms that, that do this. We're starting to see a lot of kind of media companies pop up that, that, that are building education. But, you know, really it's about access to knowledge and, you know, access to the information, building out these educational frameworks. And then, you know, to get people interested, and I'm not suggesting we need to, you know, convince people to take these substances for, for the people that are interested, we're going to, you know, we're starting to see more and more exposure in the mainstream media. Every day you can see a new article in, say, the New York Times or New York Mag or Atlantic talking about psychedelic substances. So I think it's it's just a natural process of normalization. We're seeing celebrities talk about it. We're seeing the media talk about it. We're seeing, you know, an increase in search volume around demand and interest in these products online. And so it's naturally happening where we're seeing you know, curiosity and interest. And Guella's job in my mind is to help bridge people and help provide those tools that if somebody wants to have an experience, they can come to Guella and get all the information they need to allow them to get the most out of these substances and minimize any kind of risk. I think mainstream media and especially musicians, exactly like you said, when they come out and kind of say that they've had these experiences with psilocybin or anything like that, it's definitely beneficial to the industry. Beside the individuals, what are some of the challenges that the psychedelics industry is facing today? There's a few that I can think of. Obviously, as an industry, we need to see more regulatory frameworks put in place and more liberalization. So I wouldn't exactly describe that as a challenge. Just like with cannabis, we need kind of the government's cooperation and collaboration in getting these substances approved. And so that's a that's a process. So I would say just from a business standpoint, that's one of the things that we constantly need to think about. But there's any number of kind of things that we can pick on where there's, there's challenges in the industry. For example, some of the natural stocks of these substances are being massively depleted as there's more demand and interest um, from the West. And so Piote, which is what you get mescaline from, is virtually extinct. The capivine, which you get ayahuasca, is running low. And so as more and more people get interested, we're seeing more and more sustainability issues with these substances, which is where kind of synthetic versions become very useful. And I would say another problem that we're seeing is IP and patent land grabs, a lot of money being raised and a lot of companies trying to claim territory that isn't necessarily theirs to claim to further their business. So we've seen some huge companies, you know, trying to file patents on things like taking psilocybin and sitting on a couch, taking psilocybin and listening to music. And these are fairly egregious kind of patent oversteps that hopefully won't get approved. So 
you know, I'd, I'd say those are a few of the, few of the issues. And it's complicated, right? I mean, one of the ways that we get synthetic versions or novel synthetic versions is by allowing IP and patent rights because you don't get that innovation without it. So there's this kind of friction going on where we need this innovation, we need this development, but equally we need to protect you know, indigenous communities and we need to protect the work that's been done or already and we need to be making sure that um, these substances are accessible to people that want them without, you know, very expensive or very prohibitive frameworks put around them. I mean, there's there's clinics that are around at the moment, which are super cool, but they cost like $8,000 for a session. I mean, that's completely inaccessible to some people, you know, and there's no reason why psilocybin, psilocybin is dirt cheap. Now the therapy, you know, is different, but there's all these different frameworks we need to, to, to think about to maximize people access to these substances should they want them. One thing that I like, the one point that you touched on, and I don't know if you experienced this in the cannabis industry, is that mad land grab that you talked about and companies kind of overreaching what they actually had available. And I think that was a big detriment. Now, now that you see the stock prices of some of these public companies, they're going way down just because they incurred so much debt, right? And I think that's one thing that if the mushroom industry were to go public, I think that's a learning point, right? That you can't just jump in and scoop up all this land and expect that that's going to make you succeed. Yeah. The story of Canadian cannabis was really a story of capital markets in, in Canada. We have a, you know, a very unique system of raising capital for early stage companies through our venture exchanges. And through that, you know, we get some potentially great companies, but we also get a lot of you know, rubbish and, and frankly, kind of scam companies uh, popping up. And, you know, Canadian cannabis, it was a lot of a lot of hype early on and not much has been realized of that hype. And a lot of the huge companies, the, the LPs, provide very little consumer value. They pumped up their stock prices and a lot of people have got very rich. But, you know, from where the rubber hits the road, it's not really them servicing the consumers. It's these kind of, you know, craft brands and, you know, various different smaller brands that are actually providing most of the value. So for, for psychedelics, I mean, we saw some of the same trends, um, you know, large investment bank interest putting together deals and launching them on the Canadian venture exchanges without very much and, and, and kind of using a lot of hype to, to pump up the stock runs. Now, there are some quality companies as well, but we, we, we definitely see some of that same kind of noise and nonsense come through um, with psychedelics as we did with, with cannabis. But we, we see that with any new areas in the public market. I mean, blockchain, we, we very much saw a lot of garbage come through. Esports, um, we, we definitely saw a lot of that too. I mean, there's, there's just certain groups of people that try and capture trends and raise money um, to pump stocks. And that's just the reality. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that there needs to be a lot more regulation in the Canadian exchanges. I mean, you just wouldn't get away with some of half of this stuff in the UK exchanges. It's very loose in Canada. So let's jump back here. Let's say you and I were to take a heroic amount of mushrooms, as you would say, and I were to give you a magic wand. What would you like to see happen over the next five to 10 years in terms of adopting these healing strategies in a more widespread fashion? I would like anybody that wanted access to these substances to be able to get access to them 
in a way that they want to access them. So indigenous communities should be able to use these substances without being harassed in the way that they want to use them. If people in the West want to go to a Soho House style clinic to take these substances, they should be able to. If they want to stay at home with their friends and take these substances, they should be able to. If they you know, want to have an experience at a you know, modern therapeutic center, they should be able to. Um, so in my opinion, we need this multidisciplinary approach where people can access any of these substances for whatever reason in a safe uh, and, and controlled manner. Um, so that's where I'd like to see it go. I'd also like to see things like you know, reciprocity. Um, Dennis McKenna talked about this in our in our podcast on super psychedelic, where you know, Western clinics or Western groups can get access to these substances or learn from indigenous communities that have been the stewards of the knowledge, and then use some of those systems and apply them to clinics in the West and adapt them for Western modalities. But the indigenous communities, you know, get a piece and they get some reciprocity from it. So you know, everybody benefits from this this virtuous circle. And I remember listening on your podcast as well, Dennis had mentioned that he doesn't want to see the widespread legalization of plants such as peyota, because those indigenous communities won't have benefit from it whatsoever, but instead a kind of synonymous relationship where the indigenous communities will produce those plants and then anybody looking to take those plants have the option to do so. Right. There's a word that people use called bioprospecting. It's a real problem where Western corporations go into, say, the Amazon, find out what they know, look at the substances they use, take them, build drugs, and then profit. And nothing goes back to these communities. And so Dennis was a big advocate for that reciprocity. Piety is an interesting example. I mean, he, you know, there's a lot of people pushing for decriminalization, but the in indigenous communities that use piety don't want that because it's already endangered. And with decriminalization, you would get, you know, more people trying to get access to that stuff. So access needs to be balanced with sustainability. And we need to be very careful about how we introduce more people to these substances. Yeah, sustainability is a big word in society right now, I would say. How can people learn more about healing with psychedelics if they have no idea where to start? Oh man, there's there's tons of resources. I mean, Guella's got a, a kind of digital magazine blog at guellamushrooms.com. Super Psychedelic is our podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, where, wherever you want to listen. And, you know, every month um, we're doing a few episodes um, talking about different stories and exploring psychedelics from beginner to kind of, you know, more advanced type stuff. But there's tons of sites out there. I mean, Third Wave is really good, has some great information. Double Blind's really good, has some great information. I would check out Maps. They're probably one of the, the most respected not-for-profits in the sector. Tons of great information on that. So it's, it's all out there to be found. Well, there you go. You heard the man. Go out there and do your research. What's next for you and the team at Guella? So we just launched our first product. It's called Mojo. Mojo is a gummy or a soft chew that mimics the effects of a microdose in a legal platform. So we found you know, 14 different bioactives, plant-based bioactives and nootropics, combine them together in a gummy. You can take it, gives you energy, focus, cognitive enhancement and uh, mood modulation. So you feel really good, you get in the zone, you get in flow state. That launched two weeks ago, it's available in the US. Um, it will be coming to Canada before the end of the year. So you can check out that at Mojo. 
Shop. But we've got a series of different products we're launching. We've got uh, four or five different products um, that we'll be launching over the next six months. Um, so again, you can find all of that at guellamushrooms.com. We've got products. We've got a tool called Capture App that's going live in January. And then obviously we've got our, got our podcast as well. So uh, lots of stuff going on. Awesome. Uh, before we end off, do you have anything to tell the listeners what you have going on in your life? Are you writing any books or even if you want to tell them where to reach you on social media? Yep, you can find me on social media at DigiDharma. My handle on Twitter is probably where I'm most active. So D-I-G-I-D-H-A-R-M-A. <laughs> um, so you can find me there or just search my name, Peter Atano. But other than Guella, I've got a eight-month-old baby at home that takes up most of my time. So it's, it's oh, good for you. you know, Guella, psychedelics, uh, building products and uh, looking after the family for me. Awesome. Well, Peter, thank you for blessing us with that beautiful accent. And it was a pleasure speaking with you, man. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I had a chance to sit down with Peter and discuss the fascinating world of psychedelics and where it's headed from here. Here are some key insights I'll be taking away from our conversation. As Peter noted, history doesn't repeat itself exactly. There are similarities between the current shroom boom we're seeing and the massive growth the cannabis industry saw in years past but there are also some big key differences. For one, there's a vast pool of data and research on psychedelics to pull from compared to cannabis. This research will ultimately help the industry continue to build momentum going forward. Peter made a pretty convincing case for deregulating the world of psychedelics. Not only have these incredible healing modalities helped many people from treatment-resistant depression and other mental health issues, but when it comes down to brass tacks, Having access to psychedelics is a matter of personal freedom and cognitive liberty. What's more, making psychedelics illegal doesn't help anyone because people will still be able to access them on the black market. Lastly, Guella's mission as a company ladders back to making the gift of psychedelic therapy more accessible to the average person. The company hopes to break down the barriers standing in the way of psychedelic democracy by providing access to education and resources for anyone who's interested in learning more. Finally, Peter mentioned we'll also need increased representation of psychedelics in the mainstream media so we can continue the process of normalization over time. Thanks for listening to Present Day Pioneers. I hope you learned something valuable from today's episode and that you're feeling inspired to forge forward boldly into a better future. I'm your host, Jackson Bokenfor. Be sure to tune in for the next episode and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. 